I'm Matt Milliner, and our first speaker, we're really excited, is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, Mark Galley, who has um, agreed to talk to us as why would we choose to focus on grace? Why would grace be something worthy of an investigation over an entire year? We're really thrilled to have him, and with no further ado, Mark, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Matt made a mistake early on in saying that initially I was supposed to introduce myself, but I would have just said I'm a great father, I'm an extraordinary editor, I'm a fine human being, and I would have gone on and on. So glad he didn't do that. Uh, two books that I'll be reading, well, one, two books just by way of introduction that I've used a lot to prepare this and to think about this is one thick, big uh, bookstop of a, doorstop of a book, The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge. I highly recommend it. I'll be quoting from it a couple times uh, here. And then you, can, you have a choice. You can either read Karl Barth's Dogmatics, which takes up this much shelf space, or you can read an introductory biography of Karl Barth by Mark Galley. <laughs> One costs a couple hundred dollars, this costs 15 or 20, so your choice. But I, I, I'm uh, saying this by way of it's, it's about to be released, and I, encourage, I, I wrote it because I encourage people to read it. So I've been thinking and studying with Bart for many years, and much of what I say is influenced by him. So why grace? Uh, there are many reasons why we need to talk about grace today, every day, every week, and not just for a year. And the first one is, so the way I'm going to do it this morning is I'm just going to uh, tell you some things I'm thinking, and then we'll open it up for questions, comments, and uh, disagreements, actually. Because one of the things I'm a little unhappy with is I spent the time preparing for this just trying to get my head together as, about exactly what I think and what I think ought to be said. So I'm assuming some of you will see some holes in that and you'll raise a question and make a comment and help refine my thinking at least. But I think there's enough here for us to grapple with to deepen our lives. Uh, why grace? I think one reason is that we really deep down do not believe in, the, in this overarching reality of life. It is just too astounding to get our heads around and to get our hearts around. Uh, Karl Barth calls it the impossible possibility, and yet we live kind of in the impossible part. Uh, we really have a difficult time believing grace is true and that grace is the ultimate motivator of our lives. Uh, we tend to think grace is the thing that makes us feel good, but law is the thing that gets us to do the good. And so we always fall back on law, the shoulds and the oughts and the wagging of the finger to get us out of bed, to get us to love people, to get us to be good stewards of our time and resources. When it is actually that grace is the main motivator, but that's just really, really hard to believe. And one example would be, I mean, I can give many examples. One example is gonna come up in the, uh, in the talk itself. Uh, but one, I want you to notice how often sermons and especially, well, I've seen this in both Catholic and in Protestant, evangelical and non-evangelical, how many sermons are, in fact, about 
being better or doing better. I'd say 90% of them are. Uh, and because there is ethical exhortations we are to respond to as, as Christians. But the way those sermons are usually framed, in fact, the sermon this morning was just the exact opposite of what typically happens. What typically happens is, this is a problem. You're having a problem loving people, don't we all? Here are why you should love people. Here are three things you should do to love people. Oh, by the way, we can't do this without the grace of God. And let me conclude by saying, go out and love people more. So grace becomes this little asterisk, this little addendum to an otherwise moralistic life. And I just can't count the number of sermons in which that happens. Uh, notice how Martin, be he began the sermon on love, framing it by grace. And the whole notion of grace and God's gift to us permeated the sermon. So that when the sermon was over, I don't know about you, but I was ready to go out and start to love. Not because it was a new law, but because it was actually infused with grace. But that's just really hard to believe, that grace actually can transform. We really believe the law can transform. And that's why I believe that uh, this business of sanctification, becoming more and more Christ-like, uh, we tend to think of sanctification as becoming more and more moral, more and more ethical, more and more righteous. Uh, and it is that. But to me, sanctification is first and foremost about trying, learning to believe in our justification. It takes a whole life just to learn to believe that we really are graciously accepted and forgiven by a loving God. And that will in turn prompt and flower within us good works. But if we don't get that right, I don't know that we'll ever get the good works right, and that's why I tend to say sanctification is mostly about learning to believe in our justification. So that's one reason we need to do this, and I could spend a whole series of talks on that alone, but I'm gonna address the second why grace, and that's because we do talk about grace a lot. It isn't like we don't talk about it or don't think about it. It permeates our conversation, in church, out of church. But the way we talk about grace, I've noticed, it seems to me, is that we talk about it in ways that it in, it in fact is not really biblical grace. It's more, like, it's more, about, it's more like it's kindness. It's more like it's niceness. Um, uh, it's, it's, we, in other words, we use grace in a way that tempts us to make it sentimental. Uh, we do that in three ways, and that's what I'll talk about this morning. We're, tente we're tempted to think about grace as simply a being a synonym for being kind or being nice. We're tempted to think that grace allows us to move beyond the examination of ourself and our sinfulness, and it move beyond repentance to lead a life of inspiration and hope. And we're tempted to think of grace as merely a power to help us live successful lives, as defined by the moral, legal, or social codes of our time. It greases the wheels of community, and if we can just act with grace, everything will be nicer. So let's, let's look at those three very briefly, and uses our framing text, uh, John 1, 14 to 17. Uh, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So 
that's, that's the way I want to frame a, the conversation of why grace this morning, is that grace always goes together with truth. And when it fails to do that, it becomes mere sentimentality. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sentimental grace is mere kindness. Some of this I'm, I'm going to read uh, because it's uh, material I prepared beforehand and I took the trouble to phrase it the way I wanted to, so I want to continue to do that. I'm a writer first and foremost and a speaker second. Here is the deep, deepest expression, theological expression of grace. Jesus died for us while we were sinners. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins. Here's the truth of the matter. We are sinners. Our sins rightfully should be counted against us. A holy God hates sin and therefore hates sinners. That is what is right and true and good in the righteousness of God. That is the truth of the matter. The justice of God demands the end of sin and therefore the end of sinners. And yet there is a deeper truth to the matter, a higher truth. God does not wish to live without us sinners. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons. And that passage goes on to conclude, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Sin is what separates us from God and one another. God's will is that it be brought all together. Grace means that the judgment we deserved has been borne on the broad shoulders of God. He has endured the rejection we should have endured. He has submitted to the suffering we should have experienced. Life has gone out of him instead of going out of us. We mistake grace for kindness if we leave out the cross in all its ugliness, in all its offensiveness. And this is why the, the cross, the physical remembrance of the cross and Christ hanging on the cross and bleeding from the cross is not something we should easily and quickly discard because it's too grotesque. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, puts it this way. Isn't it curious that the Son of God would die in this particular way? Even Paul was permitted a nice, neat slice of the sword. Why did the Son of God die in the worst possible way? That's the point here. Crucifixion was especially designed to be the worst of the worst. It was so bad, good Roman citizens didn't discuss it in public. It's very much like the way we avoid talking about death and sin. The Romans avoided talking about crucifixion because it was so horrible, so disgusting, so obscene. They used that word to describe it, obscene. Why this method and not another? because it corresponds to the depth of depravity caused by human rebellion against God. It shows us just how bad things really are with us. No wonder we don't want to look at it. Yet again, the African-American church has never again, never been afraid to look at it. It gives them hope, it gives them strength, it gives them comfort. As for the blood, it's important because it's mentioned so much in scripture, she says. 
It's a word that stands for the whole thing. When you say the blood of Christ, you mean his self-offering, his death, the horror of it, the pouring out of it. It sums up the whole thing. And it's not just a metaphor. He really did shed blood when he was scourged. He was a bloody mess. I remember one line from an article by a secular journalist concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. He wrote, he must have been ghastly to behold. That, she says, is a great sentence. If we fail to appreciate the horror of our sin and the horror of the crucifixion that not only defeated sin, but witnesses to the horror of sin, we will never understand grace, at least as it's understood in the Bible. We'll always think of grace as mere kindness, merely niceness. We will not recognize how God himself has taken the laws of God and man and reversed them. He has, in a word, treated us not with mere kindness, but with grace. Now, to drive this home, I just want to talk about how this deepest reality of grace then colors all other phenomenon. To practice grace with another person means to assume that something has gone terribly wrong in the first place. Grace means unmerited favor, which means that what the person receiving grace merits is not grace, but some sort of discipline or punishment. Instead, she gets favor. That's the happy surprise of grace. But the sordid reality behind grace, that which is not a surprise, is that the recipient has done something to deserve a reprimand, a rejection, or indifference, one social, legal, moral punishment or another, and yet receives just the opposite. The very idea of grace, therefore, includes a robust idea of truth. For grace to be grace, the truth of the situation, the sin, the wrongdoing, the injustice, the shortcoming, needs to be recognized and acknowledged. If we try to pretend the wrongdoing wasn't all that wrong, or sin wasn't all that sinful, or that evil can be merely overlooked, that's niceness. Grace recognizes the ugly truth, but refuses to let the ugly truth dictate how we're going to respond, or how God did, in fact, respond. And perhaps the most dramatic example of this to me comes from the civil rights era and a civil rights advocate, Will Campbell, who was involved in some of the most notable events of the civil rights movement. He was one of four people who escorted black students who integrated uh, Little Rock schools in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. He helped freedom writers from the Congress of Racial Equality and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to integrate interstate bus travel while white mob violence in Alabama was all around him. So he had this uncompromising commitment to justice for African Americans. And yet his uncompromising theology also did something else for him. He had insisted his whole life that, quote, anyone who is not as concerned with the immortal soul of the the dispossessor as he is with the suffering of the dispossessed is being something less than a Christian. And he said, Mr. Jesus died for the bigots as well. These convictions sometimes cause friction between Campbell and other civil rights workers. For example, especially when Campbell ministered to the Ku Klux Klan and visited James Earl Ray, the assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. when Ray was in prison. One particular uh, Klan member, his name was Sam, Sam Bowers. He was a convicted murderer 
a white supremacist. Uh, he was a co-founder of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, and he served. For, um, he died. He eventually died in prison. And <clears throat> in uh, in an interview I did with Fleming Rutledge, uh, she describes uh, Campbell's uh, reaction to Sam Bowers in particular. She says his way of ministering to the Ku Klux Klan was to be alongside them. He sat, with Sam, he sat with Sam Bowers during his trial. If there was an evil person, Sam Bowers was an evil person. He admitted that he had a great deal, this is uh, uh, Will Campbell, he admitted he had a great deal of difficulty sitting with Sam Bowers, but he did it as a witness to the justification of the ungodly. So that's the first uh, part, grace, from God to us and us to others is not about mere kindness. It is, it takes into account the truth of the human situation of being gravely infected by sin and yet responds in a way that transcends that. Second, sentimental grace as a way to avoid thinking about sin. Uh, we use it as a, so that we can dwell on the positive, the uplifting, and the inspiring. Uh, I want to leave time for questions, so I'll see if I can summarize this in some way. Well, the, uh, just a, not, another quote from Fleming Rutledge will do, do it well. A curious phenomenon exists in Christianity. Many people in the past have rejoiced to confess their sins, even calling themselves miserable offenders. I don't know how many remember doing that, but I do. This phrase was removed from the Episcopal Church's 1979 Book of Common Prayer because it was thought to be off-putting. And it is undoubtedly true that many of today's churchgoers, not having grown up with the phrase, would be baffled, even repelled by such language if they walked off the street. The underlying dynamic here is that we cannot rejoice to think of ourselves as sinful, let alone miserable sinners, unless we are already claimed by the divine light of the gospel. There is no way to help people to the knowledge of sin except to offer the news of God's prevenient purpose in overcoming sin through the cross. Uh, Karl Barth puts it this way in his Church Dogmatics. Forgiven sin does not mean sin connived at or forgotten or no longer indicated by the command. The statement that it is forgiven does not mean that we, there is no longer sin of our, in our self-knowledge or that penitence is no longer required. We have not received forgiveness, nor are we acquitted and justified by God's judgment unless we acknowledge the presence of sin. So to live by grace then means that we can do the hardest work of sanctification without fear. We can look at all our thoughts, all our actions, all our motives without worrying that we'll find something surprising that will shock us or surprise us or certainly it will not shock or surprise God. And when we discover in self-examination, as we often do through Lent, we can reply when we discover some new dark sin in our lives, wow, I didn't realize Christ died for that too. Thank God. More to the point this morning, uh, uh, one of our texts was about talking to brothers and sisters in the faith about something they've done wrong and how you go about that. You, can, you talk to them they don't believe you, you take two or three witnesses. That passage is so, um, we, just, we, don't, we don't live by that passage for, uh, for many reasons, but one of them is because we fundamentally 
don't know that we believe in grace or other members believe in grace because we believe that if we were to confront someone in our, uh, in our fellowship, we would be sure that they would be uh, defensive, argumentative. They might not talk to us because we, they do not have this understanding that no matter what is revealed in our lives, it's no shock to God and we, and we are nonetheless still accepted by God. Um, so to me, it seems to me the, the, uh, the, the theological logic, that is to say, the way it works theologically, the way it works in, uh, well, it, it, I think it works both ways. We would never go to God, you know, we, ha we each have those periods where we are reflecting on something we've done wrong, something we've said wrong, how we've offended our spouse or our children or a coworker, and we feel badly. We wouldn't even spend the time feeling badly or thinking about it or praying about it. We wouldn't even take the trouble to actually go on our knees and ask God for forgiveness if, in fact, already we didn't know that that sin was already covered. And if we can just extend that and deepen that, we can see that there is no sin that we can present to God that is a surprise to him. And that, in a sense, instead of uh, grace being something that allows us to then just forget about it, uh, and move on to things that are more inspiring, grace is what allows us to actually explore the deepest part of our psyches so that we can, in fact, become more uh, living uh, into the full stature of Christ. But sentimental grace will not let us do that. It wants to ignore all that. Finally, grace is the ability, uh, uh, the, the sentimental part of grace is grace is the ability to learn to live a moral life. That is to say, it greases the wheels of our church life, of our uh, work life, of our home life, so that everybody is feeling a little more warm and comfortable with one another. And I will have to say that this is generally true. <laughs> But we also have to leave space when we're talking about biblical grace uh, for grace to be grace. And for grace to be grace, once in a while, we have to learn how to defy and break legal, moral, and social law. And the greatest example of this comes from the book Les Miserables. As you will recall, Jean Valjean has been released from prison after 19 years. Uh, and he is uh, turned away from innkeeper after innkeeper as he's trying to find uh, uh, a place to stay in this village. Uh, you that know French, is it D-I-G-N-E, is that Dignier? We. Oui. We? Oui? Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you. So Dignier's benevolent bishop, Muriel, uh, gives him shelter finally. And at night, Val Valjean uh, runs off with Mayel's, uh, Mariel's uh, silverware and the, the police capture him, and then the bishop pretends to the police when they're about to arrest him that he has given the silverware to Valjean and presses him, in fact, to take two more candlesticks. You forgot these, my, my friend. Okay, the police accept the explanation, and uh, Muriel tells Valjean that his life has been spared for God and that he should use the silver candlesticks to make an honest man of himself. This is a, an act of radical grace, one of the most moving in all of literature. But I want you to notice what, what the good bishop does. He is harboring a criminal. He is obstructing justice. He is refusing society's rightful uh, uh, recompense to a man who is stealing 
and he lies. He breaks the, I forget if it's the fifth or sixth commandment. He lies. And that is the means by which grace is made known to Jean Valjean. Now, in the normal order of life, we have to obey laws. We have to obey uh, the mores of our society. That's just part and parcel of what it means to kind of get along with people. But if we don't allow, uh, if we don't allow grace once in a while to break through that in radical ways, breaking laws, we will never understand radical grace. Because this, to me, it seems that the only way the deepest understanding of the gospel is revealed. It is when law is broken. There is cultural law. When you minister to bigots who have murdered the innocent and you minister to them in love, that breaks all social and many people would say moral values of our society to have anything to do with such a person. And it breaks moral law in the cosmic sense when sin is forgiven and not counted against us. So when we grasp grace, uh, we, we grasp biblical grace, it seems to be, when we see it as surprising, shocking, unexpected, an unexpected response to something that deserves worse, and when we are willing to risk ourselves and our reputations to act with grace. One thing that's implicit in all these examples is that to act with grace generally costs us something. It costs us our reputation. At a minimum, it costs us, uh, in, the, in the instance of uh, speaking with someone who has insulted us and trying to speak kindly and, and uh, nice, uh, graciously to them, means taking the resentment and the anger that we rightfully have to express and saying, I'm not going to express it. And that's a very, anyone who's been married for more than seven minutes knows that's a very painful thing to do, okay? Okay? So it always costs something, it seems to me. Grace is always grounded, therefore, in the real, ugly truth of the human situation and is impossible, uh, is the impossible, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Grace is always grounded in the real, ugly truth of the human situation and it, 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 it includes the impossible response of love to that. Uh, so that's why we need to talk about grace, because as you can tell just by thinking about it, that's really a head turner, it's a heart turner. It's, it's just something we have the hardest time getting our head around. Uh, and we need to talk about it, not just this year, but every week, which is why we do things like every week we have the Eucharist which is a, is a physical reminder of God coming to us in Christ. And even then, those of us who are privileged to have Eucharist every week recognize, ah, there are most days I still don't think I really get it. All right, that's enough for me blabbing. Uh, questions, concerns, disagreements? What do you think? Matt.
Well, to me it would be, ask, let me back up by saying, I should, ask one, I should say one more thing that's true about grace. To live by grace means to recognize it's at one level okay if we don't get it, okay? You don't have to get grace to be in God's good favor. Uh, we, we, we all have wrong and mistaken and inadequate ideas of grace, and yet the grace of God still covers us and is patient with us and wants to work with us. So let, let this not be a screed. If you don't believe in biblical grace, there's something wrong with you. No, if you don't believe in biblical grace, you're a very normal person, <laughs> okay? And we want to grow beyond that, but we don't want to be, I don't want us to sound like I'm condemning you for it because as my family will tell me, my daughter's sitting here, she'll tell me, I do not live by grace all the time. And uh, I have a lot of areas to grow in that, and I think that would be true of every one of us. The second thing, the, the most insidious thing for me is that when grace is essentially uh, a synonym for kindness and, and niceness. So I would ask every time, you know, you know, I don't want you to be critical of every speaker that gets up here, but you'll be reading texts about this, mostly, and they'll be quoting texts. Uh, when, when the author is using the word grace, and, you've, and you can really make no difference between that and kindness, uh, that is not grounded in some sort of ugly truth behind the grace, then you're talking about kindness. And that's fine. It's a good, kindness is a good thing. To help uh, little old ladies across the street with their groceries, that's a good thing. That's not grace, but that's a really good thing. Uh, uh, I, I was at, uh, fishing at uh, Blackwell yesterday, and uh, I, was trying, I was about to get my canoe on the boat, which I can do by myself, but it's always helpful to have another hand. A man came up to me and said, can I help you? He helped me put the boat, uh, the canoe on the, on the car. That was kind. That was great. But that wasn't grace, but it was very kind of him, and I appreciated that. So just, uh, that's probably the most uh, insidious thing that happens in our culture is they just, they, it becomes a synonym for niceness. Yes? Well, we are dragged into it, that's for sure. Uh, we do respond to it, uh, and that's, I guess, I guess the way I, the way I work is that I, I, I think about things a lot, and that begins to impact my heart, and that's probably what I mean by having our hearts wrapped around it. Um, when I'm reading Karl Barth, I remember reading, sitting, reading Barth's uh, Epistle to the Romans in a coffee shop in Santa Cruz, and it was so moving what I was reading, I was in tears. Uh, so there will be times like that, yeah. It grabbed my heart. I didn't make an effort to grab my heart, that's for sure. Yes? Well, I would say that, uh, the ability to transcend is a gift. Uh, and it is a gift that comes by uh, contemplating, praying, worshiping uh, more deeply and deeply in grace. Um, again, it's trusting grace to do the work of, of sanctification. 
we tend to think grace is what allows us to feel good about ourselves and good about our relationship with God. And now I want to be a better person. Therefore, I'm going to start acting and being motivated by law, by guilt, by commands, by shoulds and oughts. Uh, and because the ultimate act of, uh, of sanctification is to love another, that love by its very definition, in order for it to be love, has to be freedom. It cannot be compelled. It cannot be compelled by guilt. It cannot be compelled by duty. It cannot be by any shoulds or oughts. If it is, it's better than not love. And that's, to be frank, most of the love I do day by day is that type of love. It's compelled by one thing for, uh, pounding on me to do it or another. But when I'm truly in God, and when I'm really saturated with grace, uh, love becomes a, in a sense, a free response. It's not because I'm commanded to do it or that I should do it or I ought to do it. Uh, then I can act with grace once it, um, I allow it to permeate me. But it's a really scary thought to think. One of the things that, uh, that's, that it, in a sense, is largely true about grace is grace means we don't have to do anything anymore. We don't have to. The, word of, the phrase is on have to. When Christ said it is finished, he really meant it. It is finished. I have done everything that is needful to do for you to have a relationship with God, to enjoy eternal life with him. It is finished. It's done. But that is a really scary thing to believe. <laughs> now, at those few moments when I do understand it, what it causes me to do is what it causes me to do is this I go, "Oh my gosh. That is amazing." And it doesn't prompt me to say, well, I'm going to go out and commit adultery and rob a bank. <laughs> what it says, is, what it makes me do is go, well, God, God that, thank you. What, what is it that you w would like me to do? What is it that you wish for me? What can I do to honor you and, and praise you for this great gift? Well, my son, there's the Ten Commandments. That's a good place to start. There's the Sermon on the Mount. And there are all these ethical commands because I am basically a stupid person. And I don't often understand what I'm supposed to do. And I'm also a fearful person. I often don't have the courage or the wisdom to do what I'm supposed to do uh, in any given situation. So that's when I rely on, on the law to help me. Okay, it's not, a perfect, it's not perfect, but at least it helps me stop from, uh, stops me from doing something, things that are really stupid, immoral, and just crazy. Uh, but in the ideal situation, it, the response is just, Lord, what do you want me to do? And it's love. So that's the transformation. Yes? My question is probably different, but theological and very practical one. Uh, your homelessness, how do you exhibit grace and what fruits does that come up? Well, I just talked to my daughter. She's a perfect example of a human being. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah. No, there, uh, there certainly is a place, there is a place for law, certainly in our society, and uh, the actions of the bishop here cannot be uh, universalized in all situations. We really do need a society of law and order. Uh, and I, talked to, I tried to make that clear. It's breaking in every once in a while. It's not a regular habit. Especially when it comes to children, uh, they, uh, they are immature like we are immature in different ways. And sometimes the only way they can understand of the way they need to go forward is by insisting on some 
some customer law that we insist that they obey until at some point they are mature enough to recognize that this is more than merely, I'm more, uh, I'm more than, uh, I'm doing this more, more oh boy, I'm doing this uh, not merely because my mother told me to do it, my father told me to do it. I can see the wisdom of it and I want to respond freely to that because God loves me and I want to respond in a way that's free and loving to the world. The other thing to remember is that grace always doesn't necessarily, uh, uh, again, our, our, our tendency to think to act with grace which means I'm always lenient and always kind to my children. But to be gracious toward, we all recognize as parents, that would be the worst thing we could do for them. That to be truly gracious means that we would enter into their lives at a point and say, no, you, you really can't do that. That's really dangerous, or that's really bad for your relationships with other people, or that's a really bad habit. And if I continue to let you do that, I would not be a very loving parent. I would not be, I would be not, not operating out of love for you. So I think it's framing the discipline and the strictures and the boundaries in a gracious way that can help. At least it helps me. <laughs> I should say I also gave a series of talks at my work on grace in the workplace, which includes the need to talk to coworkers who have not met their responsibilities, which includes uh, correcting one another, and all these things. But they all can be done, it seems to me, in a way that uh, promotes a gracious and loving environment rather than one that's uh, onerous. So I think there are very practical ways, and I'm glad other people are going to address it. Comments, questions, concerns? I just want to add on the workplace that I just saw an angle of. Yes. Well, that was the, one of the subtexts of the example of Will Campbell was, was to trying to address that because we are dealing with white supremacy and new forms in, our, in this decade. And I, uh, I, I don't want to pretend that the answer is easy. Um, I do think there is, in given um, our society, it's very, as I said, it's necessary for us to live by law and order. Otherwise, we live in chaos and nobody is benefited by that. 
So we do have to enforce laws. And I think it is only right and good if someone breaks a law, whether it's as simple as uh, discriminating in, in jobs, to actually uh, threatening or killing innocent people of another race or class or group. Those people need to be taken to justice. No question about it. No ifs, ands, or buts. But how are we now going to deal with that person that has done that? Are we going to now ostracize that person and say they do not have any right to a civil, humane conversation with another human being? Should they be left on the side of the road? I think Grace calls us to do what, uh, what Will Campbell did with Sam Bowers. It calls us, as our opportunity presents itself, to be in a, uh, in a relationship with those people that is characterized by love and forbearance. Doesn't mean we don't tell the person, well, I, actually what you just said strikes me as being racist, I think that's wrong, but there's a way of saying that that in fact communicates grace and love, and there's a way of saying that that includes exclusion and judgment. So that's, uh, and that's I think where kindness does come back into the picture. Uh, it is treating kindly someone who does not deserve it. Sam Bowers did not deserve to have a, a loving Christian person at his side during his trial, but he had one. And our white supremacists, I will call them friends, because they are fellow sinners deserve to have Christians at their side saying, okay, I love you, what you're doing is really, really wrong. I wish you would stop, and here's why. Yes, sir? Uh, you also said what I was going to say, but I think uh, it's very ungracious not to be kind, and that real grace comes with reaching out to those closest to you, family, friends, saying, hey, listen, that's racist, that's something that's just right. Yeah. Father Martin? I guess the reason that it's coming comes that Jesus does give us a, a teacher, and it's always through the teacher. He starts to move us personally. And a lot of this conversation could be happening right now in your daily life and going on in the world. At some point, you post your eyes with you on Facebook, and you can't have too many phone calls. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> can, it, can there be grace in, in, the, in the Nazareth of social media? I don't think so. Yes.
I, yes, and that's true most of the days I go fishing. Most people don't. <laughs> Well, yes, I, uh, that's why I think the law is a great tutor. Uh, and in between, for me, it's an in-between step between not being loving and the law saying, okay, whether you feel like it or not this, mor this, this morning, Mark, you need to go to work and you need to be put on a good face and you need to act with respect and, uh, with, of your fellow coworkers. I don't really feel like it. I don't really respect them today. Uh, I don't really want to be there. But the law says, okay, let's put on a good face practice it. And I think that does help so that when those times come when grace actually does flood us, we do it with a little more uh, elegance and, and grace, so to speak. Okay, I think we'll end on that uh, so that Father Martin won't feel rushed in his second sermon. Uh, thank you very much.